This is Tectonic, a weekly talk show revolving around the seismic shifts in technology, culture, and the digital age. This is episode number 26. I am Joe Darnell, your host, and with me is the co-host, Mr. Joshua Pfeiffer. How are you doing? I am still recovering, as you know, from our, our long weekend. Yes, I think we should probably tell our listeners what you're talking about. There's no better way to get to break the ice and get to know you a little bit better than to just... Yeah, you know, we've met in person, but it was a few years ago, and I don't really remember it, Joshua. Yep. Yeah, we talked about that before in the show, and uh, we we kind of met but didn't remember each other. We were not... uh... It was a different time. I don't think we were very social creatures back then at a conference. We were both introverts and surrounded by hundreds of people. I don't think we really cared to meet one more stranger. So, yeah, we uh, had had a vacation plan down in... Panama City Beach and uh, had some extra room, so we invited you all down, and uh, your family came down and joined my very large family, our guests' family, quite the weekend. A non-relaxing vacation. I need to thank you again for that trip, because it came just at the right time. My family has been really stressed out about work and family responsibilities, the children back in school. Your impromptu suggestion that we just join you up for the weekend was really welcome. Thank you again. And we were only there for two nights and a whole day, but it was well worth it. Yeah, I'm glad it was uh, refreshing for you. I guess I was down there for about three days and and uh, with all the kids and stuff, we were, my, my wife and I were just talking and saying it wasn't quite as relaxing as we had hoped with that many kids crawling up the walls. So bring a babysitter next time. Mm, babysitter? Or do you think that you'll leave some of the younger kids behind? With a babysitter. I mean, honestly, that that was what we did. You mean like in a cage, like in a kennel or something? That's not a not, that's not legal. Well, I I didn't suggest you take them to the pet kennel. Oh, okay. You know, in laws or parents or brothers, distant relations, someone, aunts and uncles. That's a whole other podcast, but the answer is no. We cannot do that. <laughs> well, we better introduce the guest now. He was also on this fantastic little vacation, Mister John Livingston, a nuclear electrical engineer. Right. That's correct. Welcome to the show, John. Thanks, Joe. It was a real pleasure to get to know you. Uh, Actually, we know each other from church, but we practically never said anything to each other. We met each other probably at some special event dinners, but you sit on the other side of the sanctuary, and there's probably a good 200 people between where you sit and where I sit. So it's like another continent over there by the windows. I don't know. I don't even know what the climate is like over there. It's actually very warm. The acoustics are very good. You know, the, I think the acoustics are better where we are. It sounds like a repeating thing, Joe. You you meet people and then never talk to them. Is that uh, maybe that's <laughs> something you should talk to someone about? I need to take the headphones off every now and then. That's <laughs> what you're saying. Well, I think I think it's part of this this generation of ours. You know, we kind of grew up, probably all grew up on instant messengers of some kind, uh, ICQ or AOL Instant Messenger, and you know, I don't know about y'all, but. I've always been an introvert, so growing up, I could uh, kind of see people at school and, and, and nod my head, wave at them or whatever, but then when I get home and get on, on chat, I'm like a social butterfly. <laughs> yeah, it is a completely different space. Uh, people feel liberated on Facebook and Twitter. They'll say things there. They would never t- tell you, fa- you know, face-to-face. Yes. It seems like that's uh, there's been a couple of conversations like that that blew up just in the last few days. <laughs> oh, really? Well, it's a very, you know, it, it, it's a, it is a very personal medium, a personal communications exchange, but it's also in some sense very impersonal yeah, because you don't have to look at someone in their face or whatever when you're talking to them. And it's, it is a very static medium. You, you lose a lot of the hand signals and body language and that kind of thing. And, you know, so we make up for it with... All caps. All caps, emoticons, <laughs> poor grammar. Poor, you know, your grammar reflects, you know, if you're a good person on the inside of your heart. And most people aren't because they have very bad grammar. Yeah, I was just fixing someone Joe's grammar in the uh, show outline. Thanks for the reminder. I was wondering about his character before we started this call. Yeah, I'm there for him. Thank you. My living, breathing spell checker. <laughs> <laughs> so when you have an was- engineer checking your spelling... What does that really say about you? It just says I'm a really good designer. We never check our spelling. (laughs) This is actually an interesting way to segue into our topics because, John, you are very interested, invested in technologies, modern technologies. Your day job might seem 
a little bit slow or a buzzkill or boring at times, I imagine, but it's also incredibly important stuff. And your line of work, your education, took you so far as the Apple headquarters for an internship. And you had an encounter with Steve Jobs back in 2005. I thought that that was interesting, predating the iPhone. And that was still during the era where we had Tutti Frutti and Faludi iMacs and fashionable iPods that were all the rage with YouTube emblazoned on them. You, but you were doing things behind the scenes that were, that were really technical work. It, it, it doesn't sound very sexy, but very important. And I really admire the technical work of brilliant people like you who put the hours, the tears into that kind of thing and come out on the other side with something to, that's real benefit to everyday people and millions of people. Can you give us a little bit more about your background and explain what it is you have to do with technology and what led you into Apple? And then on the other side, this career in nuclear electrical engineering. Yeah, sure. Well, I, I don't know if all the accolades are deserved or not, but, uh, you know, I, I, kind of my background is it's called electromagnetic compatibility. I don't know that you'd call it uh, brilliant or, uh, you know, you have to be a, a super high intellect to do it. It's more like, you know, being a plumber, but it's like the plumbing of of electrical engineering. A lot of people just, I guess they don't like to do it. And uh, sometimes you hear it called black magic because it's it's sometimes very hard to see how cause and effect are linked. It's not necessarily intelligence that, I don't know, the prerequisite for getting into the field more is more as, as it is maybe stupidity or just pigheadedness. You know, you just have to... Endurance and patience and pigheadedness. Yeah, yeah well, you know, I, I didn't realize that until I, I got into it, though, so... And then it's too late. The mechanical engineers in school used to call us sparkies. Yeah, that's right. You know, we worked with sparky things. <laughs> they they tell they they say things like, "Look, I don't know how how you guys get an electron to go uphill." You know, yeah, I guess you use a pump. <laughs> yeah, pump, oh, hydraulics. <laughs> wow, right. true nerdy humor. Now, so what what I did at Apple was electromagnetic compatibility. Is there are uh, usually federal government regulations on electromagnetic emissions, and those emissions are radiated emissions, conducted emissions. And basically, you know, if you've got a digital device, in the old days, it was a little bit more prevalent than it is probably today because everybody designs against it to, to immunize their products from it. But, you know, it's just interference. You know, you might, and, and sometimes you can still hear it like in your car when you, just as you're about to get a phone call, your speakers might buzz or your computer speakers might bzz, 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 kind of buzz a little bit. We encounter that a lot more than you would realize. I have a background in video and audio production. And at every turn, we would have all these wires strewn around a event facility. And we'd set up our cameras. We would have wireless mics and wired mics. And when you plug everything in, you start to get the buzzes. And then you think, well, okay, we got to rearrange all these wires to try and eliminate the noise. Did y'all have an explanation for it or did you just blame magic or like what, what was the, was there like a rationale or is it like a, kind of a spooky thing for you guys or? Yeah, we blame the electrical <laughs> ghosts, the, the sparkies. Yeah, the sparky ghosts. The blue smoke, if you let it out, everything stops working. It's the fog machines at these concerts these days. <laughs> Terrible. <laughs> so that's what I was, I mean, that's a, your explanation there is very good because that is actually common practice, you know, I mean. You've got signal cables, communication cables, power cables, and uh, any kind of what you might call a time-varying current voltage signal. Power is a 60 hertz signal. I think we all know that, but it varies in time. And, and because it varies in time, it creates an electromagnetic field. And those fields couple to other wires, other electronics, circuit circuitry components, and they'll create interference or other undesired effects. And in general, like the FCC in the United States puts a limit on how much, what levels of emissions across a frequency band radiated and conducted a, a particular device, any device can, can emit. Every digital device that's, that's sold in the United States must undergo this testing or if it doesn't undergo testing, it has to be exempt for you know for a few a handful of reasons that are allowed. And and at Apple, 
Apple's no different. They have every device that they produce has to meet these emissions requirements. So we were in a little lab off of, we weren't in the main infinite loop campus where all the fun stuff is happening, but every product that they developed in the various stages of design and development would go through that lab. This ha- this happens everywhere. Apple's very good about it because they've, you know, they've been doing this a long time and they've got a lot of, of money and capital that they can use to to invest in into this preventative engineering work. So that's what I was involved in. Were you at liberty at the time to know what the products were that you were working on? Yeah. Oh yeah. And uh but you know I had to sign a an NDA, non-disclosure agreement like probably all the interns there did because we all probably saw a lot of developing technology that we weren't allowed to talk about. You know, my sister at the time she wanted to buy, this was the summer of 2005, and she wanted to buy an iPod mini. You know, and I said, look, you, I'm not telling you what to do. I'm just saying that, you know, Apple always has this event in the fall and they introduce new products and, you know, you never know what they're going to come out with. And at the time, you know, they were working on the iPod Nano. <laughs> yeah, we were, I mean, as aware of it, we were trying to test it, make, make sure it passed, electrostatic discharge testing electromagnetic magnetic emissions, things, along with everything else. There were tons of other products, and some I didn't work on, some some I did, Macs and everything else. But You know, you mentioned the iPod Mini. I've not thought about that or, or heard that term in years. It reminded me of a uh, an engineer that I used to work with back in 2005 and six time frame, and he used to bring his uh, iPod Mini to work to listen. But the weird thing about it, and this just goes to show the uh, eccentricities uh, of engineers, he always kept the iPod in its original box. So he would get it out and he would turn on whatever and he would put it back in the, the box and <laughs> set the box down. So I guess that was before <laughs> iPod cases were, were prevalent. But <laughs> Wow, that was... That takes the boxing craze to a whole new level. <laughs> yeah, that's real dedication. Did he add a little strap on it that would make Johnny proud to carry it to tote it? But, there's, but that's a problem, right? This Apple box fetish. <laughs> the first Apple product that I personally bought was an iPod, the third generation iPod in, in the summer of 2004. I went to Best Buy. College was getting out. I, I purchased it, opened it up in the car, looked at it and thought, man, man, I, I really need to buy their stock. You know, and it was $14 at the time. Begged my parents, like, you've got to buy this stock, you know. <laughs> years later, I mean, I kept the box. And so like five years after that, I decided I want to throw this box away because it's just trash, you know? So I took pictures of it on my phone, you know, like, well, I'll preserve the memory. And I still ended up not throwing the box away. It's really an embarrassing situation. I, I don't even know why I'm telling you about it, but I just... Yeah, I used to have a whole wall dedicated to it. And you can ask my wife about it. True story. Yeah, it just kind of was above my desk and I just had multiple boxes somehow nailed to the wall now now they're in my in my in my dresser so guys i have a bookcase in the corner of my office i'm looking at right now and four shelves are full stuffed of apple boxes i've never gotten rid of anything i have i have final cut pro boxes i have i old iLife things i have apple care boxes i have three i have four ipad boxes i have three boxes pertaining to my apple watch Four years of generations of boxes for iPhones. I have two Apple TV boxes. What's the matter here? We'll need to put it in the show notes. Our Apple box shrines. But they really do make the best boxes. I always thought about how cool it would be to be the Apple box designer, part of that team. I I could never actually be a part of that team because those guys must be so smart, you know, way, way beyond what, what I'm capable of, but... But it's just, they make the best boxes. John, you're selling yourself short. Y'all say that this engineering business is for you know slackers and the, the people who just didn't know what they were getting into. I'm not convinced. Well, that's true, though. We always look, we want to do, the, do things the easy way. You know, we always look for shortcuts. Yeah, I wanted a Corvette. That's how I got into it. I was in high school and my dad worked with an engineer and he had a Corvette. And so I said, okay, I'll, I guess I'll, I'll go that way. Instead, you ended up with a Porsche, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, a used Porsche, classic <laughs> it's more porsche than i have <laughs> so you engineers joshua you really can't talk much about what you do as an engineer right well you know i, I there there are obviously i work in classified areas which obviously can't discuss specifics 
but even generalities, I, I kind of just shy away. And obviously, it's not a uh, breaking the law kind of thing to talk about. It's just more of a security protocol, I guess. A common sense thing to kind of just not talk about. Okay, fair enough. But because you are an engineer, that has not a lot to do with what John does, but there are some similarities. I would like for John to explain his engineering work today a little bit better. I don't know if our listeners care what Joshua does or not, but I kind of do. I never really wrapped my mind around the gamut of what an engineer does. There are so many types now. Well, the, the interesting thing with electrical engineers is we, we work on scales of magnitude, either in the very small or very large. And I kind of deal in the very small, and John kind of deals in the very large, I, th I think, you know, in transmission of power, which is these huge numbers, whereas I work in uh, radar things, which transmit waveforms that have, are, are measured in, you know, milli or microseconds or watts or, or whatever. So radar minis? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> they're, they're, uh, yeah, micros and nano uh, radar. Keep up, Joshua. It's more like radar picos, you know. So yeah, I, I work in the micro and nano a lot, and he probably works in the kilo and giga, mega, mega, yeah, mega giga, yeah, you know, giga. But I don't have I don't have an inferiority complex or anything like. Not today. His wattage is really big. Mine's really small. But I mean, it's it's all engineering. That's right. Well, that's that's really not what you were t telling me the other night. But <laughs> like you know, you, it's it's okay. We can change our minds. You know. Yeah. Hey, what happens in the Gulf of Mexico stays in the Gulf of Mexico. <laughs> It's one of those don't talk about it kind of things. Yes, we'll edit that out. Yeah, none of this will ever make it into the show. Wait, we have to trust <laughs> Joe for this because he doesn't. Oh no. oh, no. Oh, no. No, really, John. So can you explain a little bit more about electrical engineering from your end? Yeah, sure. Well, so the nuclear, my background really is more along the lines of, of what Josh does now with high frequency signals and uh, very low power radio communications and that kind of thing. That's what electromagnetic compatibility is focused on because that's where the problems arise at the very high frequencies that things like desktop computers, laptop computers, iPhones now, we you know the the microprocessors are all running at hundreds of megahertz, if not gigahertz, multiple cores, multiple processors. If if we have uh, I guess listeners that don't have a background, you know, what does that mean? I think a lot of people are clueless really. It could mean gigahertz. You know, if you're a fan of Back to the Future. <laughs> We're getting in a rabbit trail here. <laughs> These are the weeds at the back of the engineering space. This is what we debate about at lunch. Why did Doc Brown have to use gigawatts anyway? Yeah, I mean, a, you know, gigahertz fre frequency is, is a, what, a million? A billion. Eh. A billion cycles a second. <laughs> so something's going and it's cycling a billion times in one second. Yes, it's very fast. And this is the rate at which data is transmitted that make our modern electronics possible. But, you know, the downside that comes with that is that high frequencies radiate. When you say radiate, you're talking like radiation? Yeah, well, like a, you know, like a, like a radio signal. So you've got a high frequency signal traveling down a copper wire or, you know, in a, a PCB land trace, like on the, the little circuit board. Ideally, that signal stays confined to that metal conductor. But what really happens is because of non-ideal characteristics and of, of materials, those signals end up radiating portions of their power off of the metal conductors through space, through free space. And then as they radiate, they can couple to other wires or traces. And it's just like your car's radio antenna. The only thing about that is you can tune it, you know, and tune tune to what you want. It's kind of a nice thing. But but in this case, it's usually just noise. And, and I'm sure Josh knows a little bit about that. I mean, think about there are radio towers, right? We, people live near airports or military bases, and they have radar towers that rotate to, to help the planes navigate. And if you, you know, if you live close to an airport, if your computer was poorly designed, it'd just shut off and reset. Every time it spun around, nobody would like that. You might have a great device, but it just wouldn't work near an airport. And so people wouldn't buy it. And, and in terms of like, you know, military and what Josh is doing, any of those signals that couple and radiate, those signals can help the enemy identify your plane, especially if it's a, a stealth plane or whatever. You know, a stealth fighter has to be very aware and cognizant about making sure that it keeps its radiated noise to a minimum. 
That is true. Mm. So that's what I do. I mean, that's my background. And but and there is a little bit of there is more of that in the nuclear power industry. There are I think there are a hundred plants operating in the United States now, and the last one went online. I think maybe in the nineties. They really use old technology. Yeah, I would think they don't have an upgrade cycle. It's really more of a maintenance cycle. You know, you it's a very tedious process to upgrade an analog component to a digital component. And part of what we do is we'll have to go do walk downs at the plant if we're making a a design change. So you go to the plant, you take pictures of the area that you're going to, you know, install the new equipment in or whatever. There are incidents of people taking digital cameras into the control room, taking some photos. Uh, There's there's some on my website. I I uh, wrote a little article about one of these incidents on my website where a technician went in to take a photograph of a fire protection panel. And when he did, the EPROM was reset because of the flash from the digital camera. When that happened, the extinguishers were initiated inside the control room. It's not what you want to happen, you know? It's not, I mean, they had to evacuate the control room. It causes a little chaos. The main concern in the nuclear power industry is protecting the health and safety of the public. They don't want the radiation that comes from the nuclear fuel that's the heart of the the steam generation process to leak outside the plant uncontrollably. Nobody wants to be exposed to radiation. Radiation in high doses kills people. That gets us into the walking dead sort of territory. Yeah, well, you know, we all joke about how, you know, like, well, you know, how many... If you had had all your children yet, because, you know, depending on how many years you've been in the industry, you know, you, <laughs> your time might be up. Your time might be up. Yeah, that's not really true. It's actually very safe. And most people, I mean, people work in this industry for years and and don't don't accumulate any dose, as we call it. I mean, you know, when you take a flight, an airplane flight, you usually accumulate more radiation dose exposure just from the cosmic background radiation than you you get working at a nuclear plant. Typically, it's all very safe and controlled and planned, and you've got detectors and monitors, and, and people know what doses they're getting, and they strictly limit the dose that any member of the public, which includes the people who work there, receive in any year. Are, are there, I guess... Geiger counters or something everywhere to know, you know, that takes measurements. Like how does, how does that work? Like how do people know, Oh, I, I'm only getting this much today. Like, well, okay. When you go into the plant, you, you have a, a dosimeter on you. You pick one up. If you, if you work at the plant, you have one, you know, permanently assigned to you basically. And then you also get a, a another little detector and it shows you at any given time, what the rate of exposure is and what your total accumulated dose is estimated to be. Hmm. If you, for some reason, get exposed to a higher level of radiation than you were expecting, I mean, it'll pick it up and an alarm, and then you jet out of that area immediately. Goodness. You can't go into high, very high rat areas without, without knowing exactly what you're doing and what those levels are. There are signs all over the place, and like I said, some of the doors are just locked. And you know who made those designs? Who? <laughs> People like me. It's a very, it's a very nice design. Mm, thank you. The, the 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 color, the purple and the yellow. The skull and bones. Yeah, the Jolly Roger flags that you fly. The atomic symbol. <laughs> yeah, actually, on the other end of the spectrum for engineers, the people that I can encounter more from day to day are UI and UX engineers for web design. And that's what I know. That's what I'm familiar with. It's actually kind of confusing these days because the web world is still developing and it, we have a lot figured out, but we, I still feel like we have a ways to go because the smaller your business, the more responsibilities, the more hats are managed by a one, two or three person team. So you might be the designer, but also the developer and the chief cook and bottle washer, but the bigger the team, the more granular it gets. And so you start introducing the idea that you have your back-end developers, your front-end developers, your design designers, and also the engineers. So like a, a UI or UX designer, he's responsible for conceptualization and for mock-ups. And then it's the the user, sorry, the UI engineer who's concerned with building 
those defined interfaces, you know, with the tools that may or may not pertain to code, but actual usable things, not just mockups, that has something to do with what the developers do, but not altogether entirely. And also the, the, that user experience engineer is concerned with building prototypes and proof of concept works. And so I'm thinking about my world while you're describing your work, John. And I thought to myself, you know, they could use a few of our designers to help spruce things up in these old facilities with outdated technologies. We could conceptualize some stuff that look like they belong out of Back to the Future or I don't know, something a little bit more appealing to the eye and attract some more professionals to the trade. That would actually be very neat because you know, if you've ever seen, you know, you can Google pictures. NRC has pictures available of control rooms and the, the nuclear plant control rooms are... I mean, they are out of the 60s, you know, very large knobs and hand controls. and But some of the, the newer plants that are being built, like Vogel Units 3 and 4 in Augusta, they're, they're going to have some very modern environments, a very modern control room with touch screens and, and displays, flat screen panels. So that's really kind of cool. But, you know, even some of that, the programs that they use for for programming these PLCs that I don't think they have very many of these creative type designers that you're talking about. No, they're efficient. They're looking for practicality. Y'all are linear thinkers. We're the conceptual thinkers. Yeah, that's right. We're more, you know, practical. Just how do we get it up there so that it's, you know, in terms of human factors so that you can quickly glance at a at a display and not get the wrong information, you know? And we don't care how we feel about it. Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> Meanwhile, we're daydreaming about our feels. And yeah, that's where we get lost. <laughs> right. Yeah. Well, I, I thought we should move on into the main topic I wanted to discuss with you guys because all of us have these interests in technology. And also, we're all dedicated family men. You know, we, we all have families. We want to have a, a reliable day job, but we also are interested in the side hustles. And that means having projects on the side where we might make a little extra cash flow or perhaps a, a future career down the road at no particular date or time. We're just thinking long term, do we want to be the designers and engineers to, you know, that we are today for the rest of our lives? Or are we thinking that we just want a hobby that's interesting and valuable to people, something that we can give back to the world and we can say that this was something we created? And I think it's a little bit of both of those. One of the main issues, though, because we have day jobs and families, is time management. And I think that this is an interesting subject for people that care a lot about technology like we do. We're not just using it for the entertainment that we derive from it on Facebook and checking the latest sports scores. We're using them also for productivity use cases. I know that I do a lot of reading on various devices that have to do with just making efficient uses of my time rather than finding paperback or hardback copy books or making trips down to the library or waiting for something to show up in the mail or taking a trip to the bookstore. There are many, many other ways that we try to make better uses of our time. And it's not just so that we can spend more time on Facebook. So I was wondering between the three of us, is there anything in particular that y'all use for time management with in relation to technology or in relation to your side hustles? You've got a website, John. Joshua, you're working on a clothing line with your wife, so... Well, I typically work until I get so tired that I have to pass out, kind of how I manage my time. And that's when you pour the glass of vodka. Yeah, no, no, the burp, <laughs> burp. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. I guess to zoom out just a little bit, I mean, my passion is not my current job, you know, and I do have a family to provide for and all of these things, and so I've, I've always kind of been, I guess, encouraged in different ways to look at side businesses, entrepreneurism. We've got some side things going on. And, and my wife just recently, I guess, felt uh, encouraged to start her own uh, clothing business. And so I'm doing all of the nerdy behind the scenes, marketing, tech, web design, all this stuff. She pretty much makes the clothes and is the pretty face. And I'm trying to make the rest of it happen for her. We are definitely using our skills together in a good way. But I guess, I guess one of the things I want to talk about I guess the, the different approaches as, as you're a, uh, you know, a, a full-time worker, like how do you handle that in the workplace? You know, and I guess there's, you know, two different ends of the spectrum 
which I know John's taking one, and he can talk about that this in a minute, where it's like he's trying to take what he's currently doing and do side stuff to make him, you know, professional, uh, competent, all these things. Like, and I'm, ta- I'm, I'm taking like the other approach and just trying to do completely opposite things just to, oh yeah, you know, to get out of it. And in my case is a little bit different as well. I hadn't stopped to think about this, but I've been a freelance designer for a little bit over a year now, and I've been getting some satisfaction from the work, but I'm also part extrovert, uh, mostly introverted, but pretty close to the middle there. And what I'm getting out of this line of work, working from home or working from a local coffee shop has kind of run its course. And I'm ready to get back into a job surrounded by people of my peers, you know, some excellent other designers, people in the web community. And so I'm eager to venture back out into a regular day job. But I remember what that cost me when I was working in the offices for seven years. And one of the main problems for me was just a cognitive energy from day to day. I would have all this energy and ready to go and tackle the projects from eight to five. And then that was it. I, I used it all up. And if I wanted to do a side project, I was acting like a, a robot on very low power <laughs> that needed to be serviced by John. <laughs> you can always bend the, uh, sorry, burn the candle at both ends. If I, if I want to get up early at six o'clock and put in a couple hours work in the side project before I go to work, fine. But then come evening, I'm going to be super tired and hitting the sack at you know, nine or 10 o'clock. I mean, that, you know, sometimes I come home at five and I'm just wiped out. It's not that I don't have the time, it's, it's that I'm out of the energy, but it probably is more of an energy issue. But And it is a challenge when you have children, too. You know, I mean, I, and when you come home, it's really just hard to lock yourself in a room and ignore them for two hours. I don't really want to do that because I, I like seeing them. I like spending time with them. But, you know, by the time I, I put them to bed, you know, some nights I'm I'm ready to go and I still have somehow a couple of couple of marbles rolling around upstairs and somehow had a kind of a creative burst but it's like josh says other nights you, you can get home at five and just be wiped out yeah how to make it work I, i've not made it work yet so I, I don't have any i guess words of wisdom other than just working until you drop and i can't say that's worked out we've got some side income going on and want to make that bigger but it's just it's really hard yeah, what I've found that helps me, though it's not a perfect system, I don't think that there are any perfect systems, is to just plan ahead of time. Usually I do this from sort of a look over the next week, but also look over the next day. Today I was performing a schedule of events that I prepared yesterday. Tonight I'm going to have the schedule prepared for tomorrow. And I may not really you know, accomplish everything on that, that program, that's in my calendars across my, all of my devices, but it certainly helps to keep me focused because just going back to the cognitive energy thing, if I don't have something in my calendar or my to-do list that is marked with a, a time in mind, then in the back, you know, there's all these different things that are nagging me in the back of my mind that want my attention. So at eight o'clock in the morning, I'm not thinking about getting in gear to focus on the design work for the day. I'm thinking about what's going on with my kids' soccer practices tonight and that thing that my wife wanted me to do and get uh, in errands during the lunch hour. And if I just know, though, that there's something like there's a program to today's events, I have a way of organizing all the things that want to consume my mental energies. And I could put them aside and I know, well, today I don't need to think about playing video games tonight with my boy because I'm not going to have the time because I'm taking my daughter to the swimming lesson then. And instead, we're going to be you know, doing other things. So if, I, if the main thrust for me is that I can recoup a lot of my energy if I think about things that are written down that I know should have my attention right now. And that has been one key factor into improving my ability to be productive with the side hustles on top of the the day job work. Because when, when you are in the zone for more than two hours in the day job, it's easier to keep that going, to keep rolling that ball downhill. So it just comes more naturally. It's when you're trying to do the things on the side and you got your family around you and the, the the dinner that you're you're trying to help you know prepare and you got you know laundry 
roaring in the, in the laundry room and, you know, other side of the house. And, and then it beeps all at the same time while you're thinking, oh, shoot, I just remembered, got to tell the kids to prepare their snack boxes and stuff for tomorrow. It just gets hectic. It's the hectic stuff that get in the way. So anything I can do to reduce the, 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 the little bits of chaos, it goes a long way. You know, I think Josh has been using, what, what is it Omnifocus. called, Josh? Omnifocus. And it seems like, it, Joe, are you familiar with that? How it? Oh, absolutely. I was using it a while before Joshua. Ah. Yeah, I'm really psyched about it because it's, it's one of the tools I'm talking about that helps me. I have it on every device. I even have it as one of the complications on my watch. See, I, maybe I should maybe I should look into that just to just to add a complication to my watch. <laughs> yeah. it, it is a great tool, and 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 I was using it with great success for a while until some stuff just like floored me for a little bit uh, a month or two ago, stresses and things. And but I, I've I've re gotten back into the game a little bit, but I guess it gets a little bit bigger. Vision and depression, kind of like if if you if you're like hopeful, you got. Lots of energy. That's been my experience. If I actually see a light at the end of the tunnel, I can like push on. But like, when, as soon as that light goes out, <laughs> so I guess it's some sort of hope, <laughs> hope for the future. If if you really hate where you're at and want to move on, right? And probably related to that is just finding a way to do work that you enjoy, have fun doing. Yeah, you know, our friend TJ Draper, he was on the show. Uh, over a month ago, and we'll have him back soon probably to talk about reviewing iPhone successes. The fun thing about TJ that always catches my attention is when he's talking about his work, he expresses how much fun he has writing HTML and JavaScript and all those other interesting uh, backdoor developer things that I just actually don't find inherently enjoyable, just naturally enjoyable, because it's very technical work. But if you find that kind of thing that you can really enjoy, it's easier to sink your teeth into it. And that's something I wanted to ask you, John, because you're not just pursuing the, the engineering work by your day job. You're also working on your website that pertains to engineering as your side gig. Do you have any thoughts about that? And do you enjoy the work really that well? Or is it that it just comes naturally to you, and which makes it easier? That's a good question. I, I like doing it. I think it's important work because, you know, coming from an electromagnetic compatibility or EMC background, uh, as it, that was really my background and focus and study. And I had a previous job before I came into the nuclear industry doing that. And I kind of think of that as more complex and technical. So when I came back down to to power, three-phase power, you know, it's like my one of my mentor professors in EMC used to say, you know, 60 hertz, you know, I can walk that fast. That's boring, you know. Megahertz and gigahertz, that's where it's at. But but there are challenges. There are challenges because, you know, you know, it's very basic stuff, getting making sure that the cables that, that transport power from A to B, you really have to make sure that they're gonna work for for the lifetime that they're installed in. And and it is just, you know, in some sense, Ohm's law. V is equal to I times R. And there's no Fourier transform or, or, or series required to, to implement it. But it, it's important. And you can't, you know, you really have to pay attention to the details to make sure that you get it right. Because if you make mistakes, you're going to have real consequences. If you make a mistake in your design and specify a cable that's undersized because you made a math error, then these kinds of mistakes can compound. You can... You can cost people a lot of money, especially if they don't find the mistake until after the cable has already been put into the ground. You know, and we're talking, you know, sometimes hundreds and thousands of feet of cable. And that cable is very expensive, and if you have to replace it because of a mistake that you personally made, it's a very, it's a very large responsibility. So I've enjoyed learning to to help people to help people to master the details. I'm not, I'm not claiming to be a master, but what I mean is that is that you come into it inundated with details and you try to sort through things. And, and then over time, you can kind of systemize the process and, and line it all up with, with your theory and, and establish a framework that helps you work through it. I guess I'm a little passionate about education. I like to teach. I, you know, some of the best teachers that I've ever had have been able to take complex topics and break them down into layman language. And they weren't very 
self-conscious about the fact that they weren't teaching an audience of PhDs. They rather enjoyed teaching it to, to regular people, to people who didn't, who didn't know the jargon. Some people pick it up very fast, but I don't. But I have found, you know, sometimes people have told me that I've, I've taught them some things and they've made some comments like, wow, that was really great. You know, I've, I've had a lot of people explain that to me, but, but I never understood it as well as I did until you explained it to me. It probably gives you no greater joy than to hear that. Yeah, that's a great thing. You know, I, you know, we all, there are different educators, different styles, different people with learning techniques. I guess that's part of what I do is when I like to write and I like to be able to communicate my ideas better. And writing helps me first become a better engineer because it helps to solidify the concepts in my own mind you know, and remember them over time. But it also helps if someone else comes across the same problem that, that I've had, if I can go ahead and write something that helps them out and, and saves them a lot of time, that works best for everybody. You know, you can go to Google and, and you know, ask a question, how do you write this in, in certain code language or whatever? And you get all these people responding to these questions. And that kind of thing has blown open our capabilities of learning and advancing and progressing. A funny story, a friend of mine was a programmer, and he told me that at the beginning of his college career, when we were in college together, he, he actually po- posted a comment, a, one of these questions on a website. And then years later, he was looking for something similar and saw that somebody had a, a, the very same question. So he went and, and, and wrote the answer to the question. But then he realized it was, his question that he was answering, he had posted the, the question for like four years before a sophomore in college, didn't know the answer. Now oh, you know, he was a, a grad student and, and he was able to answer the question. You know, it's really, it's really an interesting story, but to, I guess that's my passion is education. And it helps me get better at what I do so that I can provide better service to the people that pay me to help them. And it also helps other engineers in the industry that they might have struggled the same way that I've struggled, you know, with the same questions that I've had. And it's taken me some time to get the answers to. So you know, I think it's just a, the Internet's a great tool and you can you can get the information out there. A branch off of that, I don't want to steal your thunder, but re- honest to God, related to what you're describing is my interest in design and podcasts and writing. A couple of years ago, I was sharing some ideas with my supervisor at a former job and I was explaining to him this theory I had. I, thought, I think that there are people who really appreciate quality over quantity of goods, of experiences, and that you see this in different people's behaviors and their, their purchasing choices and where they like to work and where they like to spend their time. But there's those other people that prefer the quantity of things in life over the quality of it. Everybody from the coupon cutters all the materialism and things that they rack up and they keep in their homes, but also other things. Maybe your expression of enjoyment is quality time. The people you're with, you're always looking for more experiences. It's, it's all about the quantity, not necessarily the quality of that time. But then there's also a third group. There, there's three different people, three different, and there's some overlap, of course. I think everybody, some of the time, likes some quality, even if they tend towards the the quantity of stuff. I like my Apple products and I like a lot of them. So I'm more of the quality camp, but I, I can see the value in having lots of experiences and lots of good worldly goods. But then there is a third group of people. These people basically just want to have a good time. They just want to live life fun and fancy free. They want to enjoy things. They want to enjoy people. They want to enjoy the moment. They're not thinking about where they came from or where they're going. They're not thinking about, you know, what they're going to have for dinner. The, you know, when they become mindful of it, it, you know, they kind of want to block it out of their minds because they don't maybe feel inclined to think about that right now. Right now in the moment, they're, fine, they're looking for something that will make them happy in a way to share an enjoyable moment with others. And so what I was debating with this supervisor was which was more virtuous or which is the more important I said, you know, thinking long and hard about it, I feel like quality trumps quantity and the mere enjoyment of things, the mere happiness for the sake of the pursuit of happiness, because it cannot always be obtained. It's, it, it'll just slip through your fingers. 
And then he, and then my, my friend, he said, you know, honestly, the, all that just makes sense that you just described, but I feel like I'm in the very middle of all three groups. I want all of the above. And that kind of took me by surprise. But then the more I thought about it, he was absolutely right. He and many others really want all of the above. And that is the best mixture of things. <laughs> well, well, come by my house. We have lots of Apple products laying around. <laughs> <laughs> so where I'm going with this is the more I think about it, the more I realize that why I enjoy design as much as I do may not have to do with the quality and though I really appreciate quality, I think it may also have a lot to do with the pursuit of happiness. So any way that I can give back to the community of other people, other nerds, or just other designers, I like to have these podcasts so that we can have good conversation. And the more of them, that kind of boosts the, the archives and provides a little bit more quantity of our good conversation. So I want all of the above too. I think that that might be the sweet spot present important information with quality of real value like John is describing and to make it entertaining, if that's possible, make people happy with it, pleasantly surprise them so that they have something to say, hey, you really helped me out today. Thank you. That's, that's the best kind of compliment you can get that resonates with you. It resonates with everyone. It really does with me. And uh, I guess that's kind of the challenge. And then Joe is the James and his his epistle in the Bible, he wrote that you know teachers have a high responsibility because they're going to be judged more harshly than everybody else. So it's very helpful to to teach others, but at the same time, you're talking about quality, quantity, cost. You have to weigh all of those if you want to be a teacher. And even though the the cost has come down with the internet, because anybody can get a website, you can go to WordPress, get a free website. You can get your own domain name for 10 bucks a year, 20 bucks a year, hosting for, you know, 20, 30 bucks a year. Put out whatever you want to put out there. I mean, it's completely affordable now. And Google will bring people to you. If you're, if you're total garbage, then you may not get any visitors, but it helps to satisfy, I think, those desires for quality is in the eye of the beholder, Right. A consumer, a person imputes value, quality to whatever it is that he's looking at. And it's really hard. I mean, Steve Jobs was the best, I think. I mean, he, his quote is phenomenal. The fact that he says it's his job to tell the consumers what they want. <laughs> he was the best at doing that. I mean, he had the, I mean, I don't know. He had a talent, a gift to really come up with, with what it was that the consumer was ultimately looking for. And they rewarded him and his company with billions of dollars. Well, that's going to probably wrap it up for this episode. Any more thoughts, Joshua? I think that'll uh, wrap it up. All right. Well, this is the end of episode 26. So, John, where can people find you on Twitter and tell them about your website? What is your domain? My website is www.nuclearelectricalengineer.com nuclearelectricalengineer.com and from there you can find my Twitter account. And if you want to find our show and is a chat with us there, it's at TectonicFM on Twitter. Then also my co-host, he's Joshua Pfeiffer and I am underscore Joe Darnell. And if you want to send your feedback or questions by email, send those to hello at tectonic.fm. I am Joe Darnell. Thanks for listening to Tectonic. And there's silence. <laughs> yes. Nothing. A penny drops, you know. And then somebody chimes in about 10 seconds later and says, oh, I'm sorry, I was on mute. Insert crickets here. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Did, Joshua, did you hear, uh, I think it was last week's episode where I added crickets? No, I did. I missed that. Sorry. <laughs> when we recorded <laughs> with Sean Blanc, he has a pretty good audio setup. He has a good microphone. Everything came through clearly fine. No strange background noises or anything like that. But then when I was editing the show with his copy of his audio, there was this one thing that stood out that in the latter half of the show, at this one point while I was talking and Sean was listening, I got a distinct loud cricket sound. <laughs>
just going chirping, ring, 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 for like thirty seconds. You got to wonder, was it like a cell phone ringing or something with the with the cricket thing? And maybe he was sitting on a back porch because I, we didn't hear it while we were doing the recording, and it was just the cricket. So when I found it, I took that clip out and I saved it and I added it to that uh, that moment in one of the last episodes where there was an awkward pause. And I inserted it for for laughs. So, do you use a like a super quiet mouse intended for I don't know podcasting or something? I, mean, I can't hear anything, any clicks. Here, here's my mouse, but that's with my mouse held up right to the microphone. I use my uh, magic trackpad. So I just tap, tap, tap. Yeah, I would use this magic mouse, but. Half of the time, it doesn't want to connect via Bluetooth. I don't know why it's not right now. You know, I've had some serious, some real interesting interference issues with my watch and Bluetooth. Hmm. Have you had any problems like that, Joe? No, I have good connectivity all the time. You're thinking like it doesn't want to connect to your iPhone? Yeah, but it, it, it usually only happens when we introduce a third element. Like I've got this Bluetooth speaker. It's really kind of neat. You know, I just, we keep it in the kitchen and you sync it with your phone, and then you can play your music, iTunes, radio, or whatever through Oh, it. yeah. I have those problems every now and then with a couple of different audio devices. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's an audio device, and sometimes, yeah, it's great when it works, but usually there's some kind of interference problem, and then the, the watch just completely stops working. I have to reboot it, reboot the phone. Really? Yeah, it's really an, it's, yeah, it's really an interesting issue. You know, it's one of those interference issues that I was talking about. Yeah, I have issues. I use a couple of different Bluetooth headsets and just so I can listen to podcasts and music, whether I'm sitting in the coffee shop or here at home and just got to focus on work. The thing is that the Bluetooth headsets, they have a range of like 30 feet. So if I turn them on and they're about 15 feet away, they tend to have a hard time connecting to the phone. Then if they get disconnected, I have to get back to the point where they're within range within a couple of seconds or they just never really reconnect. And the the stranger one to me is actually interacting with the car stereo because I get into the car, set up my phone there. It's playing a podcast when I got into the car. And the moment it sinks to the car stereo, the stereo decides you're not listening to this podcast anymore. Here, we'll put on some of the music in your music app. That's weird. I don't know. It makes no sense sometimes, like how these devices fail in certain ways. 